Eisenberg Show. This is Bill Newman in for Buzz Eisenberg on the Afternoon Buzz. And we have with us this week, continuing Buzz's conversation from last week, Peter DeRico, who is Professor Emeritus of Legal Studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He is an attorney. He was a staff attorney at Navajo Legal Services some years ago. He has a new book that I want you to know about and that Buzz wanted you to know about, Federal Anti-Indian Law, The Legal Entrapment of Indigenous Peoples. Peter DeRico, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate your taking the time, and I really appreciate your book, which I began to read, and it's fascinating and totally accessible, which I really appreciate. So congratulations on the publication of this book. I'd like to begin... I'd like to begin by asking you on this uh, eve of Thanksgiving, otherwise known as National Day of Mourning, how you see the state of Native Americans uh, today as the, in terms of their legal status and their legal rights. And I would appreciate the big picture on that because then I have some specifics I want to ask you about. Okay, great, Bill. So I want to thank you for hosting the uh, interview today and WHMP for uh, sponsoring the work that you and Buzz both do, and I'm hoping that uh, listeners will get some food for thought out of this. Um, so the big picture, uh, I like that. I like starting with the big picture because too often people get lost in the details if there's some specific issue and don't see the connection. It's like the old forest and the trees. Uh, the short answer is that the legal structure that has been a structure of domination of the U.S. over Native peoples uh, that was set up officially in 1823 by John Marshall and the Supreme Court is still in place. The basic doctrine that John Marshall and the court uh, put in place called the doctrine of Christian discovery is still at work. It's the doctrine that says that merely by arriving on a piece of land, Christian so-called discoverers acquired title to that land. The Spanish did it, the Portuguese did it, the French did it, the uh, English did it. And in 1823, John Marshall said that the U.S. has now taken up the powers of the crown. He put it directly like that. They took the crown off the king's head, had a revolution, put the crown on their head, and they claim ownership of all the land. And it's not just a uh, it's not just an ancient thing. As I said, it's going on now. It is the con- constant basis of decisions, and it's the basis of decisions that are made by conservative and liberal judges. Ruth Bader Ginsburg relied on the doctrine of Christian discovery in 2005 in a case called City of Sherrill when she denied an Oneida uh, land uh, rights case and said that after the coming of the white man, uh, the natives don't really own any land. They just live here by permission. So I would say the current state is exactly as bad as it has been. It's been papered over by certain notions like the idea that the United States has some kind of trust responsibility uh, that it has to watch out for and protect. But that rhetoric also, that comes from John Marshall, that comes from the same series of three decisions where he said that the Cherokee Nation is not really a nation. This is at the time of Indian removal. Cherokee Nation is not really a nation. It's like a ward, and the U.S. is the guardian. So that so-called trust doctrine, which people think sounds really wonderful, is actually part of the domination. So I don't, I don't know if you want to go further than that, but that's in a nutshell the way I see it. I do. I'd like to ask you about the idea that 
a lot of people hold, which is that uh, Native nations, Native tribes have reservations. They have land that is their own. They have some autonomy with regard to governance over, on the reservations. And I'm wondering what your response is to that, that claim. Well, there, is, there are areas that are called reservations, uh, and on the, in those areas there are so-called tribal governments. Uh, it's a complex picture because the traditional governments have been pushed aside by governments that are more or less created and sponsored by the U.S., the tr- so-called tribal council-elected governments. Uh, but those areas, uh, even though they're called reservations and even though it's uh, considered to be its Navajo land or its Lakota land or whatever it may be, Choctaw land, those uh, areas of land are still considered by the U.S. to simply be uh, permissions by the U.S. that the people can stay there. It's quite explicit in the statutes, uh, and it remains explicit in in ways if you have the eyes to look for it, even in cases that are where it's hidden. So that in just a year ago, uh, the case that got a lot of coverage in the news, McGirt v. Oklahoma, where Gorsuch starts out the opinion behind the Trail of Tears, there was a promise. Sounds wonderful, and Gorsuch is probably the closest of any member of the court to understanding the significance of treaties. Uh, So he said that uh, the Choctaw country still existed because Congress hadn't yet terminated it. And the defense, I mean, sorry, the dissent said, oh, yeah, Congress has already terminated it. So the difference between the a majority that supposedly was pro-Indian and the dissent, which was anti-Indian, the difference was that the majority said Congress hadn't done the dirty deed yet. But, but um, the opinion made clear, as in Gorsuch's own words, he says Congress has the tools at its disposal if he wants to terminate them. So, so this this was the case. Let me interrupt there. for a sec. Let me interrupt for a sec. This was the right. case that involved jurisdiction over what, yes. o- o- Oklahoma. Um, yes, Oklahoma jurisdiction versus federal. That was another layer of confusion, by the way, Bill. Uh, the news treated this as if McGirt upheld uh, Choctaw jurisdiction. It did not. It upheld federal jurisdiction. It's a federal government long ago. In fact, this is one of the reasons the dissent said that there wasn't even any argument here. The federal government long ago enacted what they called the Major Crimes Act. It's still in place, and it says that in a, uh, in Indian country, it uses that phrase, in Indian country, uh, any and it has a list of crimes that include murder and rape and so on, that those crimes are under federal jurisdiction. So the real jurisdictional question in the case was between the feds and the state, and the Choctaw are just out there. And yet the confusion and, and un, un, uh, uneducated views that are even in major newspapers and major commentators miss that and, and uh, just fall for this kind of rhetoric that, oh, this is Choctaw land. Well, that's, that's the pro- part of the problem, or the, I would say the major piece of the problem, is that kind of superficial uh, uh, view of what's going on, which is why I'm glad you asked about the big picture. We're speaking with Peter DeRico, attorney and professor. His new book is titled Federal Anti-Indian Law, The Legal Entrapment of Indigenous Peoples. I'd like to go back to the title of this book, Federal uh-huh. Anti-Indian law, and I have two questions about the title. The first is the use of the word Indian, and whether or not you see that as respectful or simply a colloquialism, and whether it is appropriate to talk about indigenous people, Native Americans, with the uh, term Indian. Okay, that's uh, another great question. First of all, it's in the title because 
the area of U.S. law that relates to all these issues is called federal Indian law. It's, that's its common name, uh, used by lawyers in all descriptions and used in, in massive tomes and used in case books. If you go, you know, the law schools teach federal Indian law. So I grabbed that title and I put the ante into it to make clear what is my perspective here. The word Indian itself is clearly a simulation, as Gerald Visner, who is an Anishinaabe writer, um, uses that. He says it's a simulation. It's just a, it's, it's not a reality. And it seems to me that that's very clear. It came, Columbus didn't know where he was. He thought he was in India, and it took hold. It was simply a mistake that um, now has gotten to be in such current use that it's even used by native peoples themselves very frequently you say some some refers themselves i'm indian and and uh, so it's become part of the language but anybody who's doing any work trying to put this together and, and move on a new path and for example attack the challenge of the doctrine of christian discovery is bound to have to be critical of that word and say no that that's a misnomer let's we have to use to be really honest you have to use the indigenous people's names for themselves then we know who we're talking about when i lived on the menominee reservation i was struck by how the uh Native Americans, the members of the Menominee Nation, would refer to themselves as Indians and didn't actually – now, this was some years ago, to be sure, but yep. they, didn't, they didn't see it as pejorative, as being a negative. And uh, I don't mean to spend too much time on this, but I'm wondering uh, your perspective on that. Is it okay to use that term, or are we, am I doing something uh, that I shouldn't be doing and using a terminology well, that's, that, that's inappropriate? I, I think it's like any other group, but, you know, whatever they want, if they want to call themselves that, I mean, I'm not going to say, no, you can't call yourself that, but am I going to call you that? No, I'm not going to do that. It doesn't, it doesn't fit right anymore with the way I see the world, and it perpetuates a false view. And it's, it's, I'm not saying this is some kind of uh, nasty rhetoric that we must expunge from the I think those are, it's like people trying to whitewash statues and the rest of that. That, that doesn't really get us anywhere. So I have no interest in attacking somebody who uses that word, but in answering your question, I would say what I say uh, uh, when other people ask it is that it's just simply a, it's a simulation. It's a fake name. Native American is also fake. I mean, how do you, how do you refer to people who were here before America was even dreamed of, let alone actually in existence? How can they be Native Americans? Right. They're indi indigenous it's, people. Yeah. It's dumb. And, and so you say, you know, you read in a crossword puzzle, uh, tribe in, um, in Arizona. Well, uh, you mean Arizona is actually in the tribal lands, not the other way around. I do, I'm glad you mentioned my book. I appreciate that. And I deal with this issue extensively in the beginning of, of the book to try to make clear the significance of some of this language. But as I say, I don't want to get into a rant about it because I think that it's not something uh, to get other than to begin to recognize how the language carries certain misunderstandings, uh, once you've understood that, then you you begin to change how you talk. And then what's really significant is you're changing how you think, and then you're changing your ability to take proper you know stands. Or if you're if you're an active person, we're speaking with Peter DeRico, an attorney and professor emeritus of legal studies at UMass Amherst whose new book is Federal Anti-Indian Law, The Legal Entrapment of Indigenous Peoples. 
In your book, you talk about working with uh, Bob Doyle, who just re- oh, yes. recently passed, a, one of the outstanding attorneys here in Western Massachusetts. Uh, you talk about working on a case that involved the Native uh, Native Awareness uh, Spirit. I'm sorry, Native uh, Spiritual Awareness Council in prisons in Massachusetts. I was hoping you could share a bit of that, at least in summary form, with our listeners on this the day before Thanksgiving or the National Day of Mourning. Yeah, Bob and I were uh, very close. We we uh, well, I guess we encountered some each other at some event where I was speaking, and I, he came up and introduced himself and told me about his own interest in these issues. Uh, and we just talked enough about it that I realized, you know, this guy is somebody I get along with and can work with, and he must have felt the same way. And so when the chance came to uh, do to litigate that prison case that you're talking about, uh, we uh, I, I'm, I'm admitted in New Mexico. I'm not admitted in Massachusetts. And you, as a lawyer, you understand what that means. I had to become admitted pro hoc vici just for this case, and you need local counsel. And Bob said, I'll do that. Um, so files the motion, and then we start talking about strategy and tactics, and one thing leads to another, and we become kind of co-counsel in the whole thing. So uh, Bob and I worked on that. We worked on a fishing rights case, Wampanoag fishing rights case in Massachusetts courts, um, we worked with Western Shoshone, uh, actually quite extensively traveled out there, had some amazing trips together, camping out in the mountains with Western Shoshone people and helping them litigate to uh, in federal court uh, to deal with land rights issues. So, uh, And besides all the legal work, we just had a good time traveling and uh, enjoying, uh, you know, as I said, camping out, visiting places, seeing people, and so on. So Bob, yeah, Bob was a a dear friend and a real close colleague. Yeah, we should note that uh, Bob Doyle and Peter DeRico were successful in protecting Aboriginal fishing rights, as the as those rights were called in the case, as well as spiritual practices of Native Americans in Massachusetts prisons and other cases across the country. We do mourn the passing of Bob Doyle. We are speaking with Peter DeRico. We're going to take a quick break now, and when we come back, we're going to have reflections on Thanksgiving or the National Day of Mourning. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. When it's all right. game, you've got to be as sharp as a blade, as quick as a one-timer, as tough as plexiglass. Oh, and having a solid dental plan, that's probably a good idea, too. Hit the ice all season long, right here on the UMass Sports Network. 101.5, 1400-1240-WHMP. The holidays, baking, wrapping, decorating, and of course, shopping for that special gift. Hi, it's Jessica, owner of Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. This holiday season, consider giving a private one-on-one personal training session with a Fitness Together gift card. Stop by our locations, Amherst or Northampton, to pick one up in person. Or give us a call and we'll drop one in the mail. Give a gift that keeps the ones you love fit and healthy. Happy holidays from all of us at Fitness Together. 
One thing I like about working at ServiceNet is that in addition to being a manager, I can still be a clinician. If you're a licensed mental health clinician who wants to make your own hours while also being part of a progressive community mental health team, join us at ServiceNet. For people working private practice who want to also still have a commitment to community mental health, working at ServiceNet gives them the opportunity to do both at the same time. Go to the employment page at servicenet.org. Want to support the kind of talk you hear on the afternoon buzz? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And you'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 101.5, 1400-1240-WHMP. For complete contest rules for WHMP, please visit WHMP's website at whmp.com and click on the Contest and Rules tab. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And this is Bill Newman in for Buzz Eisenberg. We are speaking with attorney and professor emeritus of legal studies, Peter DeRico, whose new book is Federal Anti-Indian Law, The Legal Entrapment of Indigenous Peoples. Peter DeRico, here we are the day before Thanksgiving, which many call the National Day of Mourning, and... It is a time for reflection for many people. It's not just about football games. It's not just about uh, family coming together, although those are uh, traditions that are meaningful to many people. But I'm wondering how you look at this national holiday and whether or not the United States should be doing something different or whether or not, well, it's okay the way it is. What's your perspective? Well, I think, first of all, what you said about the, the parts of the tradition, uh, the coming together for a meal, and eating together, uh, whether family, friends, any kind of communal meal, is of deep human significance. I think we all understand that across all cultures and far as anybody knows throughout all time, um, sharing food is really fundamental. And so I don't think you can have any criticism about saying, gee, it's great that there's a day to celebrate that we get together and eat. Um, so that's, that ought to be celebrated. And we ought to be grateful for the opportunity to do that. Um, football and Black Friday shopping, they're tack-ons. Um, and they have become, they've, you know, as typical in American culture, any of the commercial things have swamped uh, some of the, the uh more serious meanings of things. Um, I was part of a couple of those uh, day of mourning e uh, events, I guess I'll call them, in, in Plymouth. Uh, I knew Frank James, Wamsuda Frank James, and Aquina Wampanoag. When I first uh, came back here to the east from Navajo land, uh, he was uh, a plaintiff trying to derail what was called the settlement of the uh, Aquina land claim on Martha's Vineyard. Uh, traditional man, and I hooked up with a couple of lawyers to try to deal with that, 
And that's another whole story, too many details to go into. But he was the guy who was credited writing the speech. He had been invited as a Wampanoag by Plymouth, town of Plymouth, to come to our celebration. And he wrote a speech, that, and he said, they said, we want to know, you know what everybody's going to say. So he handed them in a speech, and they read and said, well, we can't have you on. You can't say any of this. Because what he was saying was basically calling out the mythology, which is false, basically, the idea that the the uh, pilgrims had this wonderful time with the Wampanoag people and that uh, there was just this kind of slap on the back camaraderie. Uh, all of the scholars that have worked on the documents and looked at the records of that have debunked that. Now for years that's been debunked. And uh, it just seemed necessary to call attention to that and say, well, what is the real story? So that's how the Day of Mourning came about. And I think that it's a very serious question. I think any society has to come to terms with itself if it's going to be a mature society. I mean, look at what Germany has had to do with its history. And the French have done through the same thing with collaboration during the Nazi period. And South Africa with its truth and reconciliation, et cetera. Canada. Now, I have, if we were talking about what does that really mean in any one of those places, what does reconciliation really mean? I have some questions about what they're actually doing. Is it just rhetoric or is it real? But in the U.S., it's been very difficult to get that sense that there's anything to rethink. I don't even want to say apologize, because apology, saying sorry, isn't, isn't enough. It's like these acknowledgement statements that are so popular in some places now where somebody gets up to give a speech in a school or some other group, and they say, well, first we want to acknowledge that we're on so-and-so's ancestral land. You know, the indigenous people here, they never agreed to give it up. And then having said, they say, well, now let's get on with the program we're going to have tonight. So th there's an awful lot of rhetoric that, as far as I'm concerned, is almost worse than doing nothing. It's, it's again, a kind of whitewashing. So beyond anything like that is how do we come to grips with what actually is the foundation of the country? If you look at Christian discovery and you look at slavery, you look at the various things that went into building what is called the United States, at some point you come to the conclusion it's not really screwed up. It's doing what it was designed to do. It was designed to accumulate wealth in, in a small ha group of hands. That was Alexander Hamilton's tax plan. And it's, so it's doing what it's supposed to do. It was designed to take native land. It was designed to uh, facilitate, at least in the initial, until Civil War made it uh, tactically you know, important to get rid of slavery. The country was built on that, too. So if we deal with all that, it doesn't mean we're somebody, oh, go shoot yourself, you're an American. No, just wake up, grow up, become mature, be ready for the world as it is. It's a much more uh, brilliant world when we actually acknowledge what it, what's going on. Then we have a chance to do things different. So anyway, that's my little speech on that. Well, I have a last question to follow up on that with you, if we could, please, Peter. And that yeah. is whether or not you see in this time when there's a lot of discussion about reparations for, for African-Americans, whether you see any possibility of restoration of autonomy for uh, native nations, for the, the, the nations that were here on this continent long before any European settlers arrived. Is there any well, hope? Yeah, I think in some places, very clear, yes, where you have... Uh, where there's a, a native people in currently living where they have always lived, the Yakima, for example, or uh, the Onondaga, uh, just to name a couple, Lakota, you have people in place on ancestral lands. <coughs> it becomes 
a fairly straightforward question. When you have groups that have been so-called removed, like the Cherokee and Choctaw in Oklahoma, it's a more complicated question. Uh, and, and I think that the uh, the question about uh, what to do about indigenous peoples is really a worldwide one. You know, the U.S. is 5% of the world's population, but indigenous peoples are also 5% of the world's population. They're just scattered. They're not in one place. And I think that the clearest signal that there has to be some rearrangement of land use is the dysfunction that's going on now that's called climate instability. The, and the damage done by the uh, whole process of colonialism, industrialism, extractive economies. Uh, it doesn't mean that Native peoples aren't themselves today in some areas involved with that. Uh, this is just part of the nature of the way economics works. But that's not the traditional way of dealing with it. And anywhere that there are traditional people, they'll tell you that. And so when you say, what's the chance? I sometimes think there's really no option. It may have maybe a lot more implosion and explosion of the dominant structures before we see that. But there's got to be a rearrangement of what it means to be on the land. And and that's that goes to the core of what this question is about whose land is it, et cetera. All right. One last question to follow up. Does yeah. the advent of casinos and that industry, particularly on uh, Native lands and Native nations' lands, does that give an economic leg up to the tribes so that they really have a chance? Because money is what talks in the United States. And I'm wondering if you think that casinos can be used productively for uh, na- for, for Native nations. Um, yeah, can be, yes. Uh, have been, not always. Um, the, the issue that's interesting about casinos is that prior to uh, the Supreme Court and, I mean, sorry, prior to Congress coming in to exercise saying we are in control and requiring the tribes to deal with states, the, uh, the, uh, it was clear that tribes could operate. This was an economic platform that they could operate on, and the states got jealous of that. So, yes, it can be. It could be and can be. And in some places it has been. The money generated has been put into broadening the economic base, so it's not just gambling. They've, they've, uh, there's been businesses started and so on and so forth. So in those places the answer has been yes. And in other places it's just been money that has been handed out per capita payments, and uh, a few people have gotten rich. And in most cases, casinos are not producing tons of money. But yes, it is. it can be. The answer, short answer is yes, it can be. We have been speaking with Peter DeRico. His new book is titled Federal Anti-Indian Law, The Legal Entrapment of Indigenous Peoples, available where fine books are sold. You can, of course, find it at Google, Google Books, of course. Peter, I hope you'll come back and be with me on my show and with Buzz on his show. Your book is fascinating. Your insights are really valuable. And I really appreciate having your time, energy, expertise on this day before Thanksgiving or a National Day of Mourning. Thank you so very much for you and for your book. Thank you, Bill, for having us on and and having this conversation. Really appreciate what you do. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Eversource is still moving forward with plans for a new natural gas pipeline from Longmeadow to Springfield. 
The estimated cost has risen from $44 million last year to about $65 million today. City councilors in Springfield and select board members in Longmeadow have made public statements in opposition to the new pipeline, and activist groups like the Springfield Climate Justice Coalition are speaking out against it as well, saying expanding any fossil fuel infrastructure would be a step in the wrong direction and pose health and safety risks of leaks or explosions. In 2012, a natural gas pipeline explosion on Worthington Street injured at least 18 people. Leaders in Springfield and Longmeadow are asking Eversource to delay a hearing on the project, scheduled for December 14th. Another successful Monty's March wrapped up in Greenfield last night. The two-day, 43-mile event began in Springfield. Monty Belmonte started the event 13 years ago. I have been pushing a shopping cart from Northampton to Greenfield for 13 of these events. However, over the last six or seven years, we've turned it into a two-day event starting in Springfield to Northampton, 17 miles on the first day, and then Northampton to Greenfield on the second day. The event has raised over $482,000 as of last night. The goal of $500,000, which will provide 2 million meals, will likely be surpassed as donations continue to roll in over the next few days. Mostly sunny this afternoon, a high of 44 to 48. Scattered clouds, evening temperatures in the 30s tonight with an overnight low of 22 to 28. Mostly sunny for Thanksgiving tomorrow, a high of 44 to 48. Rain showers in 50 on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. True terror, as Kurt Vonnegut said, is waking up one morning to discover that your high school class is running the country. So, with Monty's help, help, we take on the terror of that thought every morning at 9 o'clock. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman. Weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Welcome the arrival of the new year in the heart of historic Old Deerfield at the Friends of Deerfield Jubilee. On New Year's Eve, we're kicking off a year-long celebration of Deerfield's 350th anniversary. Enjoy a gourmet dinner, cash bar, raffles, and music by the O-Tones of Northampton. Tickets are $100 or $180 for two. For tickets and more information, please visit friendsofdeerfield.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Greenfield Savings Bank, AFI Furnishings, and Ralph's Blacksmith Shop. At American National, what's important to you is important to us. Just like every horse is unique, so is our equine coverage. American National's equine owner's insurance is designed to address the inherent risks involved with owning horses. Flexible enough to provide property and liability coverage for operations of various sizes, yet can be tailored for your specific needs. We're right by your side. For more information, just visit AmericanNational.com. American National Property and Casualty Company and Affiliates, Springfield, Missouri. Right in your town, maybe even in your neighborhood, an immigrant is building a new life, trying to find their way, all while learning a new language. The International Language Institute offers free English classes for immigrants and refugees, for true beginners and others, like students in our Bridge to College and Careers program. One of the nation's top language schools is right here, with free English classes for immigrants and refugees. The International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Buzz is away. What we like to say is on assignment, which is meaning he's playing hooky. <laughs> this is Bill Newman in for Buzz. 
and Nan Parati is here with her fascinating, wonderful, terrific segment that she does weekly with Buzz, The Interesting Thing. Nan, the microphone and the honor and pleasure of the introductions of your very special guests. It's all yours. Thank you very, very much. So today, I am really excited to have Rhonda Anderson and Tamantha Sylvester with me. And I'm going to let them introduce themselves because I want to make sure it gets said right. <laughs> Thank you so much, Nan. What a pleasure to be here. Rhonda Anderson, Western Massachusetts Commissioner on Indian Affairs, co-founder and co-director of Okateo Cultural Center. And thank you very much. Off to you, Tamantha. Thank you for that. Ani Boju, Tamantha Indijinakaz, Makododem, Bawating Donjaba. I am Tamantha Sylvester. I am a resident artist through the Okiteo Cultural Center and Double Edge Theater. I'm also a hospitality coordinator through the Double Edge Theater. Thanks for having me. See, I wanted to make sure I said that right. I was going to get. I was going to say all that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much for being with me here today. Interestingly, okay, so I live in Asheville. Tamantha, you live in Asheville, and Rhonda, you live in. I live in cold rain. Cold rain, not not warm rain, but but cold rain. Very cold rain. Yes, <laughs> I yeah, <laughs> I've been there, <laughs> and. Um, Yet, in Ashfield, we have a whole new world that we didn't have a few years ago. And I know that in 2017, when Double Edge was doing, working, doing work for the spectacle they were going to do that summer, like they do every year, and they were doing the history of Ashfield, and they were talking to historians in Ashfield, asking about the Native American presence of a few hundred years ago, and were told that there actually wasn't a Native American presence a few hundred years ago, which seemed a little odd. And mm -hmm. what happened next? So um, Stacy Klein and uh, Carlos Siriona did not believe the town historian when they were told there was no native presence and there is n currently no native presence. So they decided to go check out Larry Spodek Roman, who's having a talk as a water protector uh, in UMass. Um, as a Nipmuc citizen, Nipmuc means people of the fresh water. So they decided to go listen to Larry speak. And I had the pleasure of sitting next to Carlos Yuriona and Jennifer Johnson of Double Edge Theater. And we got to talking. I grew up in Plainfield. I went to elementary school in Ashfield, the old Ashfield Sanderson. Uh, Sanderson, yep, the old Sanderson Academy. And so he told me what they were told. And I said, absolutely incorrect. Uh, let me introduce you to some folks. Uh -huh. So I introduced them to uh, Bonnie Hartley from Mohican Stockbridge Muncie, and uh, to to Cheryl Tony Holly of the she's the chief of the Nipmuc Nation, as uh, along with several other people, and gave them a more appropriate view. Uh -huh. And Stacy was very kind, and she was rehabilitating a barn mm -hmm. and suggested perhaps that we would work with her to create a library so that people could learn about indigenous people in town. And I said, no, um, instead of, you know, relegating us to the past, why don't we create relationships with indigenous people and have an indigenous center? Uh, we didn't have one in all of central and western Massachusetts that wasn't institutionalized mm -hmm. within the five colleges or on a reservation. So we decided, yeah, let's make this a cultural center uh, where indigenous people can just come and just be. And that was in 2017. 
Um, not long after that, we received funding. About a year later, I think, we received some funding. And about a year and a half after that, we or a year and a half beyond that, sometime in the, uh, early 2019, Larry Spotted Crow Man uh, gave it its name, Okateo, which means to plant or to grow. And it's been very fortuitous. Um, <laughs> it's really, really grown a lot. Um, we have become, you know, the, the only place in all of central and western Massachusetts that is indigenous founded and indigenous led. Wow. And yes, incredible. And we have filled in a colossal gap of need. Uh, so we you know, just started off as being a place where people can gather. And now we deal with vaccine hesitation, hesitancy within indigenous communities. We deal with health equity and access within indigenous communities. We, I have um, a series called Living Presence, which I curate and moderate, that talks about indigenous issues within our communities and how allies and accomplices can assist us. And we just wrapped up our seventh in that series, and that was on indigenous playwrights, which was pretty amazing. And that, that followed up an incredible weekend with Tamantha, who had her own play that she wrote, a solo performance, something else, which was incredible, um, and a reading by Anishinaabe Theater Exchange. Which Tell, tell us about that, Tamantha. Yeah. Sure, thanks for that. Um, so my solo piece, Something Else, I created it, I have to admit, I created it for an assignment uh -huh. to begin. But then, <laughs> um, you know, it grew into this more sort of social justice, you know. Uh, well, I'm going to start by saying this. There's actually no word for art in our language. And so... And tell me, your language is... Ojibwe. Okay. Anishinaabemowin. Uh-huh. Yep. And what that means, what I was taught, is that everything is art, and so you know, whatever form art comes in, whether that's theater, what we call theater, or through a painting, or what have you, that's a way to pass down knowledge, and that's our knowledge systems, and that's our, you know, way of living and being and operating through the world. So something else has turned into something else. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's turned into a very powerful piece where, you know, you sort of get, it's through the lens of a, an indigenous woman mm -hmm. on death row, and through her journey as leading up to her death, you know, we discover uh, freedom. She finds freedom through her journey. And, yeah, there's a lot going on in there. There's statistics. I've, you know, people have come up to me and they say, wow, I really didn't know that mm -hmm. about the Native community. I really didn't know this, this, and that. And so it really shows the two worlds or multiplicity of worlds, I should say, um, and how we walk with that. And then How We Go Missing was the piece that was written by, co-written by Carolyn Dunn mm -hmm. and I. And that is about missing and murdered indigenous women. But we hope to grow that into missing and murdered indigenous relatives to include the LGBTQ plus community, uh, men. And it, that shows the different ways in which we go missing, whether that's through erasure or through murder or through mm -hmm. things of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, let me ask you this. There is so much. I want to sit here until midnight here and talk to you guys. Do we need to take a break right now, Dan? Or do I get a minute? Or, okay. See, I'm, I'm just learning how to do this. But um, um, 
Okay, cool. So let me ask you, let me, I'm going to start with this here. So Okateo in Ashfield, so it's not just like a, a these are actual buildings, these are actual places where people live mm -hmm. and do stuff. Yes, we, we have grown considerably. Um, Double-Edged Theater is our fiscal sponsor, and they are our mentors and our partners. We have created a partnership with them, and um, really historic land use, land back, and tenure land stewardship agreements with them, mm -hmm. which is amazing, absolutely incredible. It's been a long journey, a lot of bumps in the road, but creating that relationship of reciprocity has been an incredible model, uh, we hope, for other indigenous communities and organizations. Yeah, that's very, very, very cool. All right, I'm going to go to a break right now just because I got something I want to talk about afterwards. Go ahead. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. At PV Squared Solar, we live by our mission, energizing a brighter future for people and planet. This year, we are celebrating our 20th anniversary. 20 years of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar. 20 years of relationships founded on trust and clean energy. 20 years of powerful cooperation. Thank you for the partnerships along the way, and we look forward to serving this community for 20 years more. Happy birthday, PV Squared! Learn more at pvsquared.coop. Just as I was starting my medical training, I came down with an autoimmune disease that led to cancer. I needed a liver transplant. Fortunately, I got one from someone who registered as a donor. As a physician, I understand the barriers to organ donation. Some people think their organs are too old or just don't want to think about dying. But one organ donor can save up to eight lives. People who register as donors are heroes. And I'm here thanks to my hero. Be a hero. Register at registerme.org. Sponsored by New England Donor Services. Shop local and handmade this weekend at the Snow Farm Second Sale in Williamsburg, Mass. See work from over 200 artists in glass, ceramics, clothing, jewelry, and more. All at great prices. The artists may think they're seconds, but you'll never know. Do good with your shopping. Support Snow Farm scholarships and the artists. The Snow Farm Second Sale, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday from 10 to 4 in Williamsburg. Reserve a spot time in advance to limit large groups. For more details, go to snowfarm.org. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday local burgers and fries? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Local burgers and fries, spiked milkshakes, and more. It's not fast food. It's good food. Fast. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Thanksgiving holiday motorists will encounter the highest gasoline prices on record this week. 
but that is not expected to deter travel, even amid rising inflation and worries about an impending recession. AAA predicts 54 million people will travel at least 50 miles from home. Dick's Sporting Goods is one of the latest retailers to release its Black Friday deals, some of which have already started. Sales cover a wide variety of brands, including Yeti, North Face, and Peloton. For additional savings, Dick's will honor price matching. If a new smart TV is on your wish list because the old one isn't streaming the way it once did, it may just need some help. Electronics experts tell Consumer Affairs that nearly all TV problems can be solved with an external streaming device, such as a Roku player, Fire TV stick, or Apple TV streaming box. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. This is, this is Bill Newman in for Buzz Eisenberg on the Afternoon Buzz. Uh, this is Nan Parati's Space and Time. Her segment is The Interesting Thing, and her very special guests today, Rhonda Anderson and Tamantha Sylvester. I'd like to know from uh, you, Rhonda and Tamantha, uh, when you used the phrase in the first segment when you were talking to Nan, uh, indigenous communities, uh, what, what did you mean by that? Are there indigenous, I, I know there are, but what, what do you mean by indigenous communities here in, in the Valley and in Massachusetts? So help us understand that, if you would, please. That's a very complicated um, question that you're asking, and I usually like to talk about uh, the different ways in which we identify ourselves, and I like to paraphrase the late great author and comedian Jim Northrup. Mm. When he was in elementary school, he was told that he was an Indian. When he went to high school, he learned he was Native American. When he went to college, he was taught that he was indigenous. But it wasn't until he went home that he knew he was a Anishinaabe. Mm -hmm. So if we interchangeably as um, indigenous Native American people, I guess, we interchangeably use the, those terms, Native and indigenous. Um, but Native American, we were here long before America was here. Uh, First Nations is also acceptable in that, in that regard. Um, but if you know our tribal uh, affiliation, the community that we claim and they claim us back, um, that's what we like to be called. So I'm Anupak Athabaskan. Um, and uh, so we, there are indigenous communities in Massachusetts. Um, there's 50,000 citizens uh, living in Massachusetts in the Commonwealth. Uh, there's about 5,000 that live in Western Massachusetts alone. So we're uh, different, different nations, different nations. Yep. So there's the federally recognized tribal nations of uh, the Mashpee Wampanoag and the Aquina Wampanoag. And there are also about uh, four or five, I would have to do the math, um, state acknowledged tribes in Massachusetts as well. There in addition to the federal acknowledged tribes yes. that you just mentioned. Yes. Yeah. Um, tell the story when you, that you were telling me when we were driving down here today, Tamantha. Yeah, sure. So um, I am Anishinaabe, also Ojibwe. It's the same thing, but basically Anishinaabe means it's the Three Fires Confederacy. So that's the Ojibwe, the Potawatomi, and the Odawa, and that's all called the Three Fires Confederacy. They're all different groups, but same um, allies. They're basically allies. We are. 
So the story I was telling you was thousands and thousands of years ago, my people, the Anishinaabe, were all along the East Coast. And the prophecy started, uh, this is called the Seven Fires Prophecy, and the first one was basically something bad is going to happen and it's going to come from the east. And so if you want to live and you want to save as much as you can, you have to you have to migrate west. And so our people had to travel west. And we are all along the uh, different parts of Canada, Michigan, all throughout the southern United States. I think we're actually the second largest tribe in America, in South America, in Canada, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> um, all of those. But, um, yeah, but I think we talked about this because you were asking me about, you know, how I felt in Asheville and, mm-hmm. you know, it feels like home because of that reason. Mm-hmm. Because when I came here, it was a very, I immediately felt a connection. And then I remembered, I was like, oh, right, there's this whole prophecy thing and this migration west and my ancestors were here thousands and thousands of years ago. So it was very, yeah. Thanks for asking that question. Yeah, I love that. I love that story. I really do, yeah. especially going back to the story of, no, there were no... You know, no indigenous right, people around here. Right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And another thing we were talking about. So white people go about their day every day doing whatever they do. Mm-hmm. When you when one is not a white person, it's a whole different world. And we, that's another thing we were talking about before we came in here today. Um, what is that world? What do you <laughs> see that I don't see? <laughs> uh, well, as um, an indigenous woman that grew up here in Massachusetts. One of the things that I see that's very prevalent is, of course, the Plymouth Rock and the myth of the Plymouth Rock, Mm -hmm. as well as the myth of Thanksgiving, that very nationalistic, imperialistic, nostalgic um, rhetoric that's taught to students at a very young age. Um, That that is very prevalent and very confusing, Um, particularly. I, I, I don't... I don't think that that's, you know, obviously that is a settler colonial lens on mm-hmm. history and not accurate. Um, and as well, all of the monuments, plaques, statues mm-hmm. that uh, really do quite the number of erasing the indigenous people that are here uh, and were here, where the the statues and monuments are relegating indigenous people as extinct and a part of history and only using the term Indians or savages, attackers. Um, that's, really, that's really hard to see all the time. I was talking to somebody not too long ago, and he was saying, no, we're honoring them with, our sta- with the statues and honoring <laughs> them by calling the <laughs> high school Mohawk and the Mohawk Trail. What do you say to that? Oh, the Mohawk Trail is a misnomer. Um, uh, Clinton Q. Richmond, and um, it was 1919, uh, I believe. I might be incorrect with the date, but he sort of named it the Mohawk Trail um, when they were doing a pageant to raise money for the construction um, and really sort of pulling the tribe out of thin air. Really? Yeah. So yeah. none of that history is real history? Well, I mean, they, I mean, as they, far as the they, Mohawk Trail goes, they did I mean. come down um, uh-huh. and probably used some similar path, footpath that was near there, but uh-huh. that that wasn't who lived there. Ah. and in fact, in naming it that, uh, it participates in full erasure of the Pakamtuk, Nipmuc, Abenaki, uh, and Mohican tribes that were there and are still uh, here today. Ah, so you don't. So yeah. So carry on. This is really fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, exactly. But 
Because like I said, as white people, we see the statues, we see this, and you see the world in a completely different way. Yeah, absolutely. And and you, you talked about mascotry, and I'm part of two groups in Massachusetts, um, the Massachusetts Mascot Coalition and the maindigenousagenda.org. And we are working very hard with legislators to create a bill to remove mascots from public schools. Um, it is an, not an educationally sound um, representational, mm-hmm. um, educational, all of it. It's, it's wrong. Um, it's, not, it's an image not of our making, and it relegates us as historical savages, mm-hmm. warriors, um, mm-hmm. It's very problematic. Yeah. Um, go ahead, Bill. Well, I think we have to leave it here. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> There's so much more to talk about. There is so much more to talk about. Okay. Um, wow. Okay. <laughs> We're going to squeeze in another minute. All right. Great. Thank you. Um, what would you like to say then? What would you like to say then as far as, since we have this final one minute, what would you like to leave us with today? Tamantha, go ahead. <laughs> um, that was good. I would say uh, during this specific time of year, learn your history. That's one thing. Yeah. Create relationships with indigenous people of your area. Get to know them. Ask what you can do to help support and lift their voices mm-hmm. and honor and support their sovereignty. Yes. Thank you very much. I really appreciate this. <laughs> we thank We thank you all. Uh, Samantha Sylvester, Rhonda Anderson, and Nan Parati. It's been really, really interesting. I'm sure you'll be back on Buzz's oh, show yes. again. And I hope you'll come join me on our show, my show as well, because I want to hear more. Yeah. Thank you all so very much, particularly important on this, the day before the so-called Thanksgiving, the National Day of Mourning. Thank you all so very, very much. It's been really interesting and important. Thank you. Thank This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton.